Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord. We want to declare the name of Jesus once more, Lord. And we want to thank you by your Holy Spirit. You will speak to us through your word. I thank you for hearts made ready by you. I thank you for hearts that are ready to receive and to learn and to uh, just apply all that you have given to us by your grace, Lord. So be with me and be with all listening in. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this teaching, we will be going through the passage of Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 30. It's quite a long passage, so I have decided not to read the whole passage in one go. We will break it down, and then we will explore section by section. This topic will be one of those topics which I'm telling myself, man, stick close to Scripture, always. I'm not saying that the other times I don't stick close to Scripture, but I want to let Scripture teach us. Right? It shouldn't be my opinion. It has to be based on what the Word does say, and so that we can learn from it, that we will not deviate from it at all. So the title is called Satan Bound. Now, I don't know what you make out of this title, but I know that there are different kinds of teaching where deliverance is concerned. So we will touch a little bit about this topic called deliverance, not greatly into detail. More importantly, uh, we want to see how Jesus responds and how we can then learn from Him. So as always, let's set the scene first. And with that, we will read the very first section in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Let's set the scene. Now, you've been journeying together with me. We have gone through a few teachings. We see the very first word, then, which means after that, this is the situation, this is the scenario. The context which we have explored is we have seen increasing opposition against Jesus. Now, this is just the continuing story. Jesus invites people. He says, come, take my yoke, come to me, learn from me. My yoke is easy, it's light. The Pharisees hear that. They say, no, what do you mean by learn from you? You go through the grain fields, your disciples break the Sabbath, you break the law, and you want us to follow you. Now, Jesus handles this confrontation. Later on, he goes into the synagogue, and they set him up once more. And then there's another accusation against him. And following that, he replies and he goes back to them. And in our last teaching, we saw that Matthew quoted from Isaiah to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. Then this whole incident comes in. So they bring one person to him, and this guy is demon-possessed. He is blind, he's mute, and Jesus heals him so that this blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, so was it on the Sabbath or is this a different day now, right? Because this came from after the Sabbath incident. Once you understand the Pharisees' motive or objective, in any case, it makes no difference. Their focus is no longer on the Sabbath. Their main focus now is, how do I take Jesus down? How do I find fault with Him? Everything that He's doing right now, we have an issue with. 
Now, this is the third record of the casting out of demons, or we call it deliverance in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, we see the casting out of demons from two men uh, in this place called Gergesins. In Matthew chapter 9, 32 to 34, it is one person now mute and demon-possessed, almost like a duplicate, a same kind of a situation, but he's mute and he's demon-possessed and Jesus casts out that demon. And in this situation, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, which we have just read, again, a demon-possessed man, but not mute just, but also blind. After Jesus heals this man, there's a reaction from the crowd. All the multitudes were amazed. And then they said, could this be the son of David? Once again, it's not a new reaction because in Matthew chapter 9, the previous deliverance case, it's recorded, they were saying to each other, it was never seen like this in Israel. Now in this situation, they were astonished, they were amazed, and now they start to ask, is this the Messiah? Now they're getting closer to it now. They're asking this question, is this the son of David? You know it's a messianic title, and some of them are saying, I, I think it is. Others are saying, could this be? And in the Greek wording, it actually involves some skepticism. It's like, are you sure or not? Is this the guy or not? You know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. They didn't know whether to believe or not. Now, when the Pharisees heard this, now they got to jump in because people are now starting to get swayed, right? They are starting to believe in this person. And so they come out and they give their statement. They discredit Jesus and they say, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, they were really rude. If you look at the Greek phrasing, the word fellow, I mean, we look at this fellow. Already fellow is a very rude term. It's like this, this, this guy, I mean, this joker. <laughs> That's what actually it means. But in the Greek, there's no word fellow or guy or man or, or joker. It's just this nondescript person. Don't know who he is. This fellow, I mean, call himself a rabbi. So you can see that they were all out to attack Jesus. And he says, he does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Again, not the first time that they have called Jesus by this title. Previously, already in the casting out of the other mute and demon-possessed men, they already said it is by Beelzebub. And Jesus also says this is not a surprise. He tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? So in other words, he is prepared for this kind of an attack and he's taking this in his stride. Now at this point, let's look at this name, Beelzebub, or in some translation, is Beelzebub. Now in the Old Testament, there's this character called Baalzebub. Baalzebub is a pagan god of the Philistine city of Ekron. And the meaning of Baalzebub is the Lord of the Flies. Now, why the Lord of the Flies? Uh, we don't really know. Is He really the Lord of the Flies or did this God protect the Philistines from the flies? How many of you want a God like that? God of the mosquitoes. I mean, that would be wonderful, right? Uh, but it's not entirely clear. But archaeologists in the excavation at Philistine sites, they have actually uncovered golden images of flies. So in other words, they do worship some of these things 
and they are all idolatrous. And in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, King Ahaziah, he falls off and he injures himself. And what does he do? He sends a messenger to consult Baal-zebub if he will recover. And because of that, Elijah goes to him, rebukes him and says, why do you go seek help from this foreign god, this idol, when you really should be seeking help from the God of Israel? So that's the only or the closest mention of this Baal-zebub. And in the New Testament, it is now Beelzebub. And it actually means Lord of the Dung, the Lord of the Dung Heap. Now I'm scratching my head. It's like, why Lord of the Dung Heap? I mean, well, it may be a corruption of this name, Baal Zebul, because it's a deliberate effort to demean uh, a god or an idol. So they call it maybe the Lord of Dungs. And may, why Dung? I'm putting two and two together. What do you find on top of Dung Heaps? Flies. So a lot of flies, a lot of dung, Baal-zebul, Beelzebul, whatever it is. But in those days, it was common practice to apply names of gods of the enemy nations to the devil of one's religion. Right? So you can take the names of the gods of another religion, of your enemies, and say, look, this we can attribute it to the enemy of our religion, which is the devil. As you understand now, as such, Beelzebul or Beelzebub is now a reference to Satan. And that's why they call him Beelzebub, the prince of demons or the ruler of demons. And so that was their accusation. The Pharisees were not really against demonic deliverance because in their own understanding and their own religion, Jewish exorcism was an accepted practice. So they would cast out demons too but it had to be conducted according to their terms and their conditions. And because Jesus did neither of that, they questioned the source of Jesus' power. If you don't do it our way, that means you must belong to the alternative or the enemy, and you are now considered a magician, a sorcerer, as of those of other religions and practices. And if that's the case, then you are of the devil. Now, what they're saying is a very, very heavy statement and a very big accusation. What, he, what they're saying is, if you are of the devil, if that's true, then that warrants actually a death sentence. So just one statement, it wasn't just a, wasn't just a name-calling thing. It was an all-out thing. Remember, in their confrontation, in the opposition, they went out and they plotted how to destroy and how to kill Jesus. So this was not a play-play-I-call-you-names thing, you know. It's a, I'm coming against you, and I'm here to take you down. Now, unlike our previous lesson, where we saw that Jesus withdrew and did not confront them, Jesus did not withdraw this time. He engaged the Pharisees head-on. And there are some lessons that we can learn from his rebuttal, and we can see and learn more about our enemy, as well as understand, in Jesus' name, our victory over this enemy. So for the rest of this teaching, I'm going to just give you just four simple things down here, but we're going to unpack it a little bit and learn a lot more. So the first point I see is this. Every kingdom divided against itself will not stand. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now Jesus is attacking their statement and their presumption and their accusation and to say, look, what you're saying is illogical. I mean, come on, which ruler in their right mind would divide his own kingdom or his own city or break his own house? If he does that, then it will result in a, in a civil war and destruction will come. He will shoot himself in the foot and in the end, he's going to lose. And so, hello, will you think a little bit? I mean, if you want to accuse me, at least be smarter lah. Okay, this is totally illogical. This proposition by them is absurd and it's ridiculous. So what we learn from Jesus is that every kingdom divided against itself will not stand. We see Satan's kingdom is totally united against God's kingdom. No doubt about that. Their main objective is to keep people in bondage. If the good news is to set people free, then the bad news is people are still in bondage. Satan, together with his demons and his entire scheme of things of the kingdom, he does not want anyone to be set free at all. As such, he will not cast out his own demons. And I think we can agree on this one broad point and on this one principle. Now, having said that, Satan, we know, is also the master of deception, distraction, and decoys. You see, there were alternative exorcisms and deliverance methods by other religions, pagans, and cults. Now, obviously, these are not by the kingdom of God, right? And even up to today, we see that also happening. And it's very common for people including believers, when you come to a point of desperation, what do you do? You look for alternative remedies and cures. Have you come across people like that? They can pray and, and when it doesn't work, they'll find other alternatives and when it works, they will tell you actually it works. Yeah? So they seem to be set free from these, but ultimately at the end, they're still in bondage. Because if these are pagan religions, cults, then they have not come into the kingdom of God, then there can be a deception there, there can be a distraction there, there can be a decoy to confuse you who then is the right God. You think to our day today, there's also a rise in secularism and intellectualism. So a lot of people, they don't believe in demon possession at this point in time. In fact, they like to dabble with things that are demonic. And demons today appear very cute and very friendly. And they are actually there to help you. And this is because of secularism, where the enemy is deceiving the world today to say, don't look at me as a threat. I'm really very nice. Okay, and so there are good demons or bad demons. There are good witches and bad witches. You have, you have heard all these kind of stuff before. And so everything now if it's not demonization or if it's not spiritual in its attribution, then it's attributed now to what? Mental and psychological disorders. So they ignore the demonic and they treat these by medication. I'm not saying there's not a place for medication. In some cases, 
it is clinical, and in some cases, you can be helped with some uh, medication. But if you rule out demon possession, then everything is treated only by medication. These people are still in bondage. And even worse, sometimes they are on long-term medication, and they are also in a bondage to these treatments. Now, on the other extreme, you have hyper-spirituality, which means behind every issue is a spirit. Right? So on one hand, we say, no, no such thing as that. On the other hand, everything is a spirit. And so if you are angry, we have to cast out the spirit of anger. If you are lazy, we have to cast out the spirit of laziness. Okay? If you like Korean drama, we have to cast out the spirit of Korean drama. So behind every issue is a spirit. Can you see this? And so the enemy is a, he's a master in decoy and distractions and you're, you're, you're rationalizing and attributing all these things all over the place. And what happens to this person? The person has no, no personal responsibility to live free in Christ if you are a Christian. So at the end of the day, this person is still in bondage because everything you see is a spirit behind it. Somehow this person never gets set free, although he or she is supposed to be free in Christ. So number one, Satan's kingdom is very united. They know exactly what they are doing. But they also, in their unitedness and in their stand, they have deception, they have distractions, and they have decoys. We have established that Satan's kingdom is not divided. Jesus says this very, very clearly. But as I'm preparing this, one question came into my heart, and I think this is what we need to ponder. Is God's kingdom or house divided? Now, Satan's kingdom is very clear. Now, we are people of God's kingdom. Are we divided? Now, I want you to ask this question, but I'm going to give you some thoughts down here. It's said that sometimes there is no clear consensus on how to deal with such issues and other issues also. Like I shared just now, on one hand, we are too ready to attribute everything as of the devil. So something that we are not familiar with or uncomfortable with must be of the devil. On the other hand, everything is fine. So don't be too spiritual. You know, we are free now in Christ. So you can do anything you want and nothing is going to happen to you. At the same time, we have a lot of confusion and also a lot of suspicion within the body of Christ. And you sit down with different people at different times. Don't you see that we have denomination versus denomination? Traditional versus charismatics. Then you have the cessationist versus the continuationist. And we're looking at each other and we're just arguing and we're debating over all these things. And in the meantime, the enemy is very happy because he's dividing the kingdom of God in such a way. Now, it's not that we have no convictions. It's not that we're not trying to be correct in this. But my concern is that in trying to be right, in trying to be lawful, in trying to live correctly, have we perhaps missed the main thing? Deliverance is important. But it doesn't end there. Just like salvation, it is important, but salvation is only the beginning. It is what happens after deliverance that is even more important. We have to ask, is this person really set free? Is this person really growing in maturity in Christ? If not, then deliverance can become a preoccupation, a crutch, and also a distraction. Have you ever noticed that a lot of times you see the same people going up for prayers? 
And whenever they hit another problem, they go for another deliverance. And they're going from deliverance to another deliverance to another deliverance to another deliverance. And then in the meantime, we are wondering whether is it of the devil or whether it's not of the devil. See, the deliverance is important, but it's not the main thing, right? It kicks off something. By the end of the day, even if this person says, okay, I've been set free, great. Do you know what it means to be free in Christ? Now you've got to grow up in Christ so that you know who you are, where you stand, the authority and the power you have because we cannot keep doing deliverance on you for the rest of your life. But if we are not even agreed on something like that, then deliverance becomes the preoccupation. Deliverance becomes a distraction. Please, my friends, do not get me wrong. I'm all for deliverance, okay? If you need help, if you need prayer, if you need counsel, go get it. But understand, don't be a serial deliverancy that you keep going for this kind of stuff. You've got to know who you are in Christ and begin to grow. So the first thing, every kingdom divided against itself will not stand. We know Satan's kingdom is united. It's coming against the kingdom of God. We know Jesus, uh, together with his kingdom, we are advancing. But I submit to you, we can do a lot better to understand where the battle is and stop fighting with one another. Point number two, hardened hearts cannot recognize the kingdom of God. Hardened hearts would resist the kingdom of God. Let's go on in verse 27 of chapter 12. Jesus continues in his argument, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you know in the Old Testament, although Satan and the evil spirits, they are mentioned, we actually do not see many cases of demonic deliverance. If you want to look at a deliverance case, maybe there's only one. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 to 23, remember the Spirit of God departs from King Saul and an evil spirit comes upon him. Now what happens? Uh, David comes in, plays the harp, and Saul is delivered. And every time the Spirit comes upon him, David will be called in and then Saul will be delivered again, right? So that was the only really very clear example of deliverance in the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, suddenly in the gospel accounts, open confrontation between Jesus and demon. It must signal something, which shows you something has broken through. The warfare is intensified. And Jesus comes in and makes it very, very clear who is the one in charge. Not only in the gospels, but also in the book of Acts, we see the disciples together like Apostle Paul, they are casting out demons. This signals a very, very clear sign that the Messiah has arrived, that the kingdom of God is already in, and the kingdom is advancing in a very, very violent manner. So Jesus is trying to make this point to these people to say, hello, the kingdom of God here. Nah? Okay, you understand not? I'm showing this to you. Now, you understand deliverance. Your people actually do it. Now, can I ask you, by whom, by what power do your sons cast them out? And the word sons here simply means your disciples, the people who are following you, are, you're teaching them all these things. Surely you endorse it. By what power? Okay? You look at this Jewish exorcist. That's the term that they go by. It's only mentioned by Jesus here, alluded to. And in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, is mentioned just one other time. 
These are the seven sons of Sceva in Ephesus, where they saw Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and then they tried to do the same thing, and it didn't really work. And we'll talk about that in a little while. Now, the synonyms for the word exorcist, sadly, unfortunately, not very positive. Synonyms. That means you use this interchangeably. The words are magician, sorcerer, and imposter. Magician, sorcerer, and imposter. For example, Simon the sorcerer, Acts chapter 8. Ilamas the sorcerer. Meaning these are people who have alternate methods of deliverance and they're usually it's by sorcery or by magic spells. Now you think back, in the Old Testament, we are introduced to magicians in Pharaoh's court. Okay, Hold that thought for a while. In the meantime, let's look at Jewish exorcism. So since we understand in the Old Testament, we don't have many cases or many accounts of deliverance we understand that Jewish exorcism probably developed in the Old Testament times much later. It is also due to possible influence from other Near Eastern practices. And so they pulled from one another and they are largely based on magic, formulas, incantations, chants. But from a Jewish perspective, now they base it on Hebrew scriptures. And the only way in their understanding to control the demon is to obtain, and in some cases, through magic, power over the ruler of demons. This is the only way they can cast the demons out. Okay, They've got to get power over the ruler of demons. Now, if you understand their psyche and their thinking, that's why they're looking at Jesus and now accusing Jesus of that. Ancient magicians, they were largely syncretists. That means they pull different things together. They mix and match. And they would borrow terms from any religion that sounded sufficiently strange to be deemed effective. So they would borrow from one another and they would start to cast spells or to say some of these things. Except with the Jewish people, of course, they used Hebrew scriptures and attributed it over to God. Now they have rituals also, and it's largely also liturgical. This is what they do. They will use smoke and sulfur to, inverted commas, fumigate and coerce the demon into cooperation. And the way that they can get power over this demon is to try to coax this demon to reveal the name. Now again, does it sound familiar? When Jesus asked the demons, what's your name, right? Okay, so there's there's some similarity down there. And why do you need this name? You need to know this name so that you can then overpower him by his attributes and what he possesses. Jewish exorcism also at times, they will sought assistance, now get a load of this, from benevolent spirits. Now it makes you wonder who is the right one now, right? And those who are being delivered, many times they are subjected to mental, emotional, or even physical abuse during deliverance. Because in and through the rituals, it will get increasingly intense because they're trying to chase this demon out, they're trying to coax this demon, and when it doesn't work, they're trying to, in inverted commas, beat this demon out. Now, we read this and we won't find this difficult to believe because even in this day and age, we hear of deliverance methods and exorcism involving physical abuse. We have also read of cases where they cheat you of money, they cheat you of possession, and the person is also sexually abused all because of this whole thing of trying to get the demon out. 
So that's just to give you a little bit of context. Huh? And so Jesus is saying, if such exorcisms you consider they are supposed to be of God, and now you want to point this finger at me, I just use one word, I tell the demon, excuse me, go. And you are trying to, to bring this charge against me that I'm of the devil. Can you see? All Jesus needed to do was just tell the demon out, or he just speaks a word. Jesus is even more powerful. He didn't need to conjure up anything. He doesn't need to chant. He doesn't need to seek of help of any other power. Now, you've got to decide now. Jesus is either Beelzebub himself, who is the ruler of demon, or he is God who alone had power over Satan. You go figure that out. And Jesus rebutted in this way and challenged them in return. To say, if you're calling me Satan, if you're saying that I'm doing this by the power of Satan, then what do your people do it by? And then he concludes, in case they still couldn't figure it out, in case they still missed the point. He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. And if you look at the Greek, the word if actually can be translated. Now, since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. In case you still don't get it, in case you're still trying to figure this out in your muddled brains, I'm telling you, I'm casting out these demons by the Spirit of God. It proves that the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, the Jews look to the day when Messiah will come and will be empowered by the Spirit of God to usher in the kingdom of God. And at that point in time, the kingdom of God will then be established by the power of the Spirit of God. And so what Jesus is really trying to show them and explain to them is, I don't need all your rituals. I don't need all your routines. I don't need all your mumbo-jumbo. I am the king. What I say goes. And you notice there's a little thing down there which we shouldn't miss. He says, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, if you know Matthew, the entire book of Matthew, most of the references to the kingdom of God is actually the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the Jews revered the name of God so much that they will not use the title God at the risk of offending God and abusing this name and taking this name in vain. But here Jesus is recorded as saying the kingdom of God. And you know why? Simple. He didn't have to be politically correct. Because He is God, and He can say, this is the kingdom of God. I'm telling you, it's by the Spirit of God that the kingdom of God has arrived. It has come upon you. It is right here. Can you open your eyes and see this? But you see, once the heart is hardened, it's very hard to recognize the kingdom of God. Once the heart only wants to protect yourself with pride, and you want to destroy everyone else who does not agree with you, then you will not only not recognize it, you will resist the kingdom of God. In a parallel passage, in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Luke records these words. Jesus saying, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wow, if, if they couldn't recognize the Spirit of God, surely they would remember this phrase, the finger of God. I mean, if you know your Old Testament well, right? I mean, I'm saying this, the finger of God, and I see heads nodding. It's like, yeah, 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 we've read it before. We know what this is all about. And this would point back to the third plague in the time of the Exodus, when Moses, by the power of God, turned dust to lice. 
In Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, the magicians then said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, boss, don't play play, okay? I mean, I can duplicate other things. This one I cannot do. Moses is doing this by the finger of God. He's not doing this by himself. Now, how did Pharaoh respond? Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord has said. Sadly, the Pharisees also responded in the same way as Pharaoh. See, friends, hardened hearts cannot accept the move of God. Legalism will not allow you to recognize the things of the kingdom. In fact, a legalistic heart, a hardened heart, a prideful heart will be closed and you will resist the things of the kingdom. So let's be careful, right? Sometimes we are so adamant and we are firm and fixed in our own positions that we refuse to see something that God might be doing and wanting to show us. And again, I'm not saying don't have convictions. Later on, I'll show you, live by your convictions, but be open to what God can do and wants to show you. The third thing I learned from this is that Satan is bound and his house is now being plundered. Verse 29 of chapter 12. Now Jesus goes on and he says, look, let me show you another illustration in case you don't understand this first one. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Now, Jesus had already established that Satan's kingdom is not divided. They're very, very united. There's no way you can get into this house unless you take down the boss, this strong man. Then after that, you can rescue those who are trapped in it. That Jesus can just say a word and demons flee, it means that he already has the upper hand over Satan. The strong man has already been bound and Jesus is stronger than this strong man. He is greater than the ruler of demons. And this was his message to the Pharisees. It's very simple to understand. We don't really need to argue too much about this one. But as I considered this, a question came into my heart. And I'm not sure whether you wonder about this too. When did Jesus bind Satan? I mean, if he says, if the strong man has been bound and, and I'm now plundering, surely Satan must have been bound at a certain point in time. If you read the Gospels, it doesn't indicate anywhere that he bound Satan. But we do know that in the wilderness, he overcame Satan. When he refused to submit to Satan's office, he refused to worship Satan. And in that, he did not yield to temptation. Satan had no power over Jesus. Not only that, Jesus' obedience to Abba Father, to God the Father, gave him victory over Satan. And so from that point onwards, because of his faith in God and his obedience to God, he already secured a certain victory over Satan. Now, there's a very powerful lesson down there for all of us. If you would be faithful and obedient, you give Satan no power. Do you realize this? But he didn't stop there. Final victory, we know, was secured where? At the cross. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So we're very clear. I hope you know this, and I hope that you're very convinced. Jesus already has victory over the enemy. Is that amen? That's true, right? But here's another fact for you. Satan is still roaming the earth. But I thought he's bound. So how can someone be bound still be roaming the earth? Do you ever wonder something like that? Jesus is already victorious over Satan. And in that we know that he has the upper hand, he has power over this uh, ruler, and in that sense, he has bound the strong men. But Satan is still roaming the earth. And I believe we need to see this from an eschatological point of view. This statement by Jesus and this casting of a demon foreshadows the time when Satan will be finally bound for 1,000 years. If you read Revelations chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, right at the end, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of all, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished." But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So when will Satan be finally bound? When Jesus comes back, and for that 1,000 years, Satan will be bound. And so this is very consistent. We shouldn't be surprised by this. How can it be? So is he bound? Is he not bound? No, Satan has already been bound, but he is not bound yet. Am I confusing you? Right? We already have victory and yet you notice we are still being attacked in some way, right? And final victory will only be experienced in its fullness when Jesus comes again. This is consistent with our understanding of, is the kingdom here? Yes. But is it here yet? Not yet. The kingdom is here, but not in its fullness. It is here, but not yet in its full. And that's why there's still a battle that is going on. So what Jesus is now showing the people is the kingdom has arrived. He's, inverted commas, bound Satan because prophetically, eschatologically, that's going to happen finally. But in the meantime, we have the upper hand. We have the power. We have the authority. Because in Jesus' name, the strong man has already been defeated. I hope that answers the question for you. That's why today I say you must really stick to Scripture. What Scripture really, really says so if Jesus has bound Satan, and yet Satan is not bound yet, but will be bound later on, I have a second question. Are Christians supposed to bind Satan? I hope this is a good question for us. And uh, I know depending on which orientation you come from or what you have been taught, your answer could be yes, and some will say no. And you will appeal to scriptures like Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, and Matthew 18, verse 18, because there's this thing about binding and loosing, correct? We are told that what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And so if we bind the demons now, we bind the Satans, and they will be bound in heaven and all that. I used to believe and agree with that, and I probably also prayed in that way. But if you read the context of these verses... 
the binding and loosing actually refers to church authority and not the binding and the loosing of Satan and his demons. I say again, let's stick to Scripture. Okay, I want you to go back and study these Scriptures for yourself. And I see that there is truth in that and there's a basis to understand and interpret it in that correct manner. You see, Satan is still running around all over the place. If not, Paul would not openly declare that Satan is still the prince of the air and the god of this age. That's very clear. And I'm here to tell you that no amount of binding in your prayers is going to change that. Scripture says he is the prince of the air and he is the god of this age. But that said, they're all disarmed, they're all defeated, they cannot stand in the way of the advancement of the kingdom of God. So, are we supposed to bind Satan? Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, and I'm going to share some scriptures here with you, we are told to, number one, be sober and be vigilant. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Why must we be sober and vigilant? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Why do you just bind him? If you bind him, then he cannot walk around like a roaring lion anymore. But Peter doesn't say, bind him, so he doesn't do that. He says, be sober and vigilant, just in case he devours you. Resist him, steadfast in faith. James says the same thing in chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why does James not say, submit to God, bind the devil, and he can't do anything to you? I'm standing on scripture. He says, resist him. He will flee. Now what follows after this verse would be instructions for us to repent, to stop being double-minded, to stop sinning, to live holy and humble lives before God and man. Now that gives you an idea of how you are to submit to God, what's the result of that, and because if you stand in that stead by faith, you resist the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, we are told to put on the armor of God. Paul actually says that there will be powers and there will be principalities. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against these. And then what does he say? Bind these powers? No. He says, put on the armor. See, there's no instruction to bind these powers. They're defeated already. They can't do anything against you unless you allow them to do something to you. Put on the armor of God. And here comes the important qualification down here. What does it mean to put on the armor of God? This is not some spiritual superstition, you understand? Please don't every morning look at a mirror and say, I put on the helmet, I wear my belt, I put on this breastplate. Then after you walk out and you say, I put on the armor of God. Now that's a good start. At least you know the parts of the armor. But to put on the armor of God, Paul was just giving a picture for you that you have to live your life with the knowledge, with the understanding of what the truth is that you're rooted with the shalom of God so that the enemy cannot knock you over. God's shoes fitted with the good news of the peace. And you hold up the shield of faith. Do you believe or not? Understand what the salvation is all about. 
and then wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and together with the prayers of the saints, you resist this enemy. No binding. Scripture doesn't tell us to bind. And so I would humbly suggest to you and tell you, can you let Jesus and the angels do the binding at the end of the age? In fact, let's be more accurate. There's only one angel who will bind. I saw an angel, one. Jesus doesn't have to do any binding. He just dispatches one of the angels and the angel will already have enough power to overcome Satan. In fact, in Jude 9, we see that Michael, the archangel, did not dare to do or say anything against the devil without God's direction and permission. So what's our part? If we're not to bind, be obedient, be faithful, live right by the ways of the kingdom, and don't give the enemy a foothold. It's as straightforward as that. You must know who you are and the power and the authority that you already have. Finally, as we look at this fourth and last point, Jesus concludes in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Make sure you're on the right side, point number four. Make sure you're with Jesus and you're not against Jesus. This was decision time for the Pharisees and if the multitudes were listening in, so Jesus is saying, look, am I God or am I with Satan? You, you decide. You decide. You make sure you're on the right side. Make sure you're on team Jesus. Don't choose the wrong side. Don't accuse me wrongly and you're going to end up in the wrong place. The Pharisees thought they were speaking for God but were actually speaking against God. And this is painful, huh? if we come to understand this truth. Instead of gathering, they were scattering the people of God. Instead of unity, they were sowing discord. I don't know how else to say this, but I'm preaching this to myself and reminding myself of this. Be careful that we're not doing the same thing within the body of Christ. It is too easy to fall into this trap. Because I have questions, and I know you have questions, and there are certain practices that we may not be very clear, or we may not be very comfortable with every practice. And I found myself asking questions. If I want to ask it with the right heart, I want to ask it with the right spirit. And if I don't understand it fully, if I don't have that revelation of what that practice might be, or if this really is a move of God, this is my reminder to myself and also to you. Live by your convictions and let them live by this. Live by your conviction. Okay, there's a time for you to speak out and there's a time for you not to be capable. I'm serious about this. Live by your conviction. Don't be distracted from fulfilling your own assignment. I think I've, I've said this time and again. Sometimes we make complaining and discrediting other people our assignment. If you're very clear that's your assignment, the Lord be with you. But for many of us, it is not. How can we talk about other people if we ourselves are not even moving on assignment? Because in the end, and Scripture is very clear about this, every servant will give account to the Master for his words and his actions. And so I want you to be faithful in what you're supposed to be doing. Now I want you to be careful. I want you to be convicted. I want you to do due diligence. I want you to study the Scriptures. But sometimes things are still not as clear as you would like it to be. Am I right? 
And I don't have all the answers for you, but here I'm saying to you, make sure you're on Team Jesus, but at the end of the day, don't scatter. We should be holding people together. So does it mean that anyone can cast out demons using the name of Jesus? Since we say, don't judge. Lah, huh? Since we're saying, uh, if, as long as in Jesus' name can already. Lah. Well, we only have two examples here. In Mark chapter 9, 38 to 41, the apostle John asked Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. And Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Okay, so this is the first example of someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, but not following the ways of the disciple. Now, the other one is Acts chapter 19, the seven sons of Sceva. They took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And you know what happened, right? The Spirit looked at them and said, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but uh, excuse me, who are you? And it was really, really quite embarrassing and humiliating for them. I look at these two and I realize that there's a difference between casting out demons in his name and trying to cast out demons using his name. Do you understand the difference? You see, to be in his name means that you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know him, you believe him, you belong to him. And that's why you are in Christ and you're moving in his name, in his personality, in his character, in the things of the kingdom. And that's why the demons would understand that. This someone in Mark's gospel is someone who believes in Christ sufficiently to know that he has the power and the authority of the king. But the seven sons of Sceva, they were only using, making use of his name and say, let's see how it goes. Remember, the Jewish or the exorcism of those times is like, whichever one can work, we just use the name. The Spirit then saw that they didn't know Christ. They didn't see Christ in them at all. But Paul was identified as someone in Christ. And so they would listen to Paul because of Jesus, but they would not listen to these. Lesson is simply this. The name of Jesus is not a magic chant or formula. Okay, you cannot use this any old how. Everything is by faith according to grace. And so if you want to use the name of Jesus, make sure you have a relationship with Jesus and use it boldly and to know that you have power and authority in that name. The next question is this then. Is everyone who casts out demons in Jesus' name known by Him? Is everyone who casts out demons in Jesus' name known by Him? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 23, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very, very clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons, what, in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, so here comes the point one more time. 
There's nothing wrong with casting out demons. Jesus was not against these, casting out demons in His name. But remember, the ability to cast out demons is not an indication of spiritual maturity or right kingdom living at all. It is definitely not a qualifier of final entrance into the kingdom, as we understand from this passage. I want you to be really excited if you, if you cast the demon out in the name of Jesus. But don't think just because you cast a demon out in the name of Jesus that you are walking rightly in the way that He wants you to walk. Because He says, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so once again, the, the reminder for us is, Live right. Beware, because this world is increasing in its lawlessness. I'm not saying be a legalist. Please, don't go to legalism. But I'm saying learn the spirit of the law. And I'm saying please don't gratify your flesh with the freedom that you now have. Now you must live by the law of the spirit. Because you love the king, you serve the king, everything has been done in the ways of the king and his kingdom. He will give you his power. You have the authority in Jesus' name. But I say again, please be careful. Don't let these distract you from what really is the most important. And that's why in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, he tells the believers, he says, Be diligent to add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. He didn't say, go and cast out more demons, go and heal more people who are sick. You know, if you do all those things, but you don't add to any one of these things, you will be barren, you'll be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you add all these things to your faith, then you'll be diligent to make your call and your election sure. And then an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, when I read the scriptures and when I study God's word, I come up with these crazy questions. I don't know if you're like me. Some of you are sometimes too shy to ask these questions. I hope the answers would have helped you. As we conclude, let me just summarize very quickly. I've said many things. I've gone a little bit broader than what this passage is all about. There are two kingdoms and they are at war. And souls are at stake. Let's recognize that Satan's kingdom is very united. And the reminder is for us that we must stand united as God's house and God's kingdom. Don't compromise the truth, but I think our objective is to gather, to stand together. Don't scatter. We have enough people doing all those things. If there's anything you're not clear, will you do yourself a favor? Leave it aside for a while. Go back to the Lord. Ask Him to show you. In the meantime, live by your convictions and leave others to live by their convictions. Because if you're seeing souls being delivered, people getting saved, people getting to know Jesus, then praise God for that first, but then move on to bring them into maturity unto Christ. Right? Deliverance is not the be-all and end-all. Deliverance is to set them free so that now they have a chance to live lives worthy of their calls in Jesus Christ. The devil is strong and he is sneaky. But don't give him too much credit. Understand that he has already been bound in inverted commas and he will finally be bound. 
in Christ, we have all power, all authority over this enemy. I feel, and I look at the scriptures, and I hope you agree with me, we're not called to bind Satan and his demons. We are called to live in the fear of the Lord, to submit to God. And when we do that, the devil has to flee, and he will have to run. And it's our faith, it is by our obedience that we live holy, righteous lives in Christ, where the enemy has no foothold over us, and we will always live victorious in Jesus Christ over him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. I thank you that the strong man has already been defeated at the cross. I thank you, O Lord, that his house is now being plundered, O Lord. And I pray that you bring us into this truth, Lord, so that we know that in Christ we have that power, we have that authority to plunder the house of the enemy so that more people will be saved, more people will be set free to live lives worthy of their calls in Jesus Christ, O Lord. Father, I pray that we will not be people who will be against you or against one another. I pray that you will help us have hearts that will be gracious and hearts that are not hardened, hearts that will be not be proud to think we ourselves only have the right answers. But I pray that as we live by our convictions, we would be faithful in the areas of operation that you have sent us in so that together we will be strong for the kingdom of God. And so I thank you as you bring us into this truth, O Lord, that in the end, the name of Jesus will receive all glory and all praise. And we thank you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.